I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This, there's a small chance this is episode 381, although I'm not looking. I think it's 381. Sure, it's 381 now. If there's already been a 381, this is 381A. What am I telling you? I'm in Richmond, Virginia on the Jazz or Bus Tour. And actually, as you're listening to this, I am traveling from Richmond to Charlottesville where I'll be for a couple of days, and then on to Nashville. And if you're in the Nashville area on Sunday, June 17th, which is this coming up Sunday, I'm doing a poetry reading at 4 p.m. at the Nashville Jazz Workshop. Uh, so please come by. There'll also be music, and uh, it should be a really fun time. So please come by and check that out. I also have updated the itinerary at jasoncrane.org, which is where all the tour diaries are, and added readings in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I'll also be hanging out with Donald Brown. Um, that's at someone's home in Knoxville on Friday the 20-something. Whatever the Friday is after the 19th. And I'm not doing that math. I don't, I don't get paid nearly enough to add numbers. Uh, and then I'll be in Auburn, Alabama, of course, like you do, on the 29th and 30th of June. And I'm doing a reading on the 29th. And on the 30th, an event, uh, a live interview event, which is... 99% booked and will, if it becomes 100% booked, will promise to be a really, really cool interview with kind of a legend of jazz in Alabama. Uh, and if it falls through, it will just be me or something talking about jazz. And then that'll be less cool because I'm less legendary in Alabama or anywhere else. Uh, but anyway, on the 29th, there's definitely a reading at the newsroom, which is G-N-U apostrophe S. And you probably already know that if you live in Auburn, Alabama. And then it's on to other places, I think Tuscaloosa, uh, and then, of course, New Orleans, and then Points West. You can support the tour in a couple of ways. One is to go to thejazzsession.com slash tour and make a one-time donation, and there are lots of cool thank you gifts. Uh, I've started sending out the postcards from the road, so everyone who's donated gets one of those. And then the T-shirt designs just got finished. Those will be going out soon, and you know, there's lots of other thank you gifts. Or if you want to become a recurring member of the show, you can go to thejazzsession.com slash join and starting at 10 bucks a month or a yearly sum of $110, you can become a member. And it's those memberships that are keeping me fed while I'm on the road and sleeping. Well, it's actually, I used to always say I kept me sleeping indoors, but actually the kindness of other people is doing that now. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. You can buy their albums. Thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel. Thanks to Rob Grundle, who designed the logo for the Jazzer Bust Tour. And Rob is in London, and uh, I'll certainly be hitting Rob up for his couch when the part of the tour uh, jumps the pond and goes overseas. Today's guest is Harris Eisenstadt. He's been on the show before, and he's got two new albums uh, kind of expanding his Canada Day idea. There's a, a third in the Canada Day series and also an octet recording. And he has a CD release show, I think actually more than one, if I remember correctly, in the New York area this weekend. 
and in any case, for the accurate information that's actually useful and not whatever it is I just said, just go to the show notes of the jazzsession.com for this episode, and I'll have all the constant information there. Uh, Harris, I interviewed right before I left New York, and because, of course, he's got the CD released this weekend, I wanted to make sure you got a chance to hear the music and hear our conversation, and then you can go out and support it if you're in the New York area. So coming up, we'll hear some music from Canada Day 3, and then my conversation with Harris Eisenstadt. My guest is the composer and drummer Harris Eisenstadt. He's got two new records out, the Canada Day Octet and the third volume of the Canada Day series, and it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, man. Nice to be back. I'll just mention that we're sitting on your front porch, so uh, people may occasionally catch the outside sounds of Brooklyn here on a beautiful uh, late spring day. They may. It is It is fantabulously beautiful right now. Outside. Much more so than it was two hours ago. Oh, man, it's awesome. Yeah, really digging it. When it was rainy. So I'm not sure which order to start in, but actually, let's start with the Octet record. Uh which is cool because it seems to have gone through a couple of evolutions, like the the original pass through making it octet worthy, and then as I understand it, you kind of went back through it again and did even more rearranging. Can you talk about where the obviously you've done octet work before, but can you talk about where the melding of the octet idea yeah. in Canada Day came from? Yeah, this is a different uh, sort of yeah uh, path or whatever. Um, the the pieces that are on the record started as quintet pieces, and then. Uh, Destination Out, the website uh, and blog, had, a, had a, um, a concert series in Manhattan. I guess this is, forgetting if it's 2010, for about a year. And at some point, so they, off- they asked me to do a gig and make it a sort of a special event, a different ensemble. Um, so I decided to expand the Octet and add, uh, expand Canada Day and add some people rather than start a new group from the, from the ground up. So I did and um, uh, took some quintet pieces and at the time we pretty much just did we had just finished a quintet tour so we just really did barely fleshed out arrangements of the music and then uh 482 music uh was interested in recording the band and said well you know let's do it you know six months from now kind of thing or maybe almost eight months after that it was sort of spring to december of the same year i guess it was 2011 that right yes and um and so I, i spent a long time kind of um uh, orchestrating the music for octet and uh, voicing things out and adding harmonies to some of the, the the lines and a bunch of backgrounds and stuff like that, making them into really octet pieces. I'm always interested when you write something for. I mean, you have a very specific group and your group has a sound and 
you know you you obviously have a conception for the main Canada Day band, and when you when it comes time to add other things into it, it always strikes me as something that must be a bit of a challenge because it's not like you left a whole bunch of open space the first time right. when you composed it's the music. True. So can you talk a little bit about the idea yeah, of adding kind of to the it? first time I've really ever done that. I feel like in a way where I took already existing material and trying to turn it into something else. Um, and it was a it was an interesting process, and I. I um, it sort of happened circumstantially, uh, but I'm, I'm sort of glad for the experience because um, it made the it made the octet music I think different than it would have been had it started out just like okay I'm going to write some music for octet. Um, having said that, it kind of falls in line with some other medium-sized ensemble records I've uh, projects I've done over the years. Um, the most recent is Woodblock Prince and Nonette from 2010. Um, previous ones I did this record called the All Seeing Eye plus Octets in 2007, which was a sort of reimagining of the Wayne Shorter record and then also some octet material of my own. And before that, the earliest one was actually Septet, a record called Fight or Flight in 2003, where I kind of, the endeavor was, uh, there's a larger group, let me try and write a long form sort of piece, a longer piece over an hour or 50 minutes kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of what this suite of pieces ended up being, it's just that they happened to start as as quintet pieces. Is there something about that that seven, eight, nine person instrumentation that is more expansive than a quintet and less unwieldy than a big band maybe I don't know if I'm... <laughs> I mean it's, yeah, that's exactly what it is it's like you have all these voices but it's also realistic that you'll ever do it <laughs> it's not <laughs> you know, 22 I mean, people my, I tip my hat to the big band writers of today and I would I've done some large ensemble stuff a little bit uh, I've a, a, had a group called Ahimsa Orchestra in 2004 2005 and um, that was as big as I guess 15 16 and I did get a chance to write a piece for the American Composer Orchestra last year which is a different endeavor of course but um, you know actually having sort of a real bona fide large ensemble and having it work is a big challenge so 789 is a way to get at that while still having it be somewhat manageable, as it's hard enough as it is to get it done. So. And kind of understanding that a lot of the audience of this show is a lay audience, are there are there arranging uh, techniques that you can use to make it sound like a larger ensemble when you don't have you know full sections in each instrument? But That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think there's a there's a there's there's a number of things to think about when you're orchestrating for say octet. Um, 
you know, are you going to have people doubling lines? Are you going to have unisons? Are you going to have uh, f- dense chords between, you know, and also in, it depends on what the octet is. In this case, it was um, uh, four, I thought I conceive of it as, you know, four single voice instruments. And then the tuba, which is sort of the fifth single voice, is dub- kind of doing counter- counterpoint bass lines. Mm. So in a way, it's like four horns, a chordal instrument, vibraphone. And then bass and tuba doing kind of double bass line, counter line type of things, and then drums. So, um, yeah, I mean, you could think of that as that could be 60 instruments and somehow voiced out that much more. Or in this sense, it's kind of quite skeletal in a certain way. And very often, actually, as it turned out, there wasn't like there were four independent single lines on top of four kind of, you know, bass function and chordal things. There would be sometimes people doubling things or you know, uh, three voices spread out in four things, you know, kind of all the, all the above. How did you decide what to add? Instrument, in, instrumentation wise? Yeah, or did you decide who to add and didn't uh, worry yeah, about a the good instruments? Question. Yeah, um, it was kind of instrumentation wise and who, it was a combo. Um, I really wanted to try something with, I'd done this on Woodblock Prince and I really liked it, having tuba and uh, bass do a kind of double bass counterpoint function thing. I really love that sound and want to work with that again in the future for sure. Um, and I was just sort of thinking about like what, what, what made sense to add to the Canada instrumentation. So uh, it could have been anything, but I thought, well, let's go for as kind of spread out a palette. But, um, you know, and, and I also wanted to try something different than woodblock, woodblock prints, a non-chambery thing and just have straight up like, you know, two saxophones, trumpet and trombone, and then have this kind of, you know, double bass function thing happening, and then vibes are already there, and drums are already there. So. Will you talk about uh, who it, in fact, is on the uh, Octet yeah. album? so it's Canada Day is Nate Woolley and Matt Bowder, um, Chris Dingman, Garth Stevenson, and myself. And then I added Jason Mears, a longtime collaborator, alto saxophonist and great composer, and um, uh, Ray Anderson, the great trombone player, um, and Dan Peck was a uh, the tuba player on the record originally actually joe daly was the tuba player for the first gig and then had some scheduling stuff with when we the session happened so dan um step in stepped in and did a great job so that's great yeah. um ray anderson obviously is a, a huge huge name in the world of improvised music yeah. and has done a lot of pretty creative ensemble writing himself i wonder what yes. that experience was like working it was great you know i met ray um i was playing on a leo smith concert i guess it was a couple years ago and ray was there i guess they've known each other for a long time and we got to talking after and super sweet guy and just said let's find a way to do something one day and this came up and he wanted to do it and it was really you know he was super i mean everyone was really easy to work with and it was great but uh i mean obviously played beautifully and um uh sort of you know authoritatively kind of thing but also brought this great generosity uh just sort of a spirit to what he played every time he started playing it was just like beautiful so yeah i wanted to ask you about that just expand on that a little bit more because he uh he is such a distinctive voice i mean ray anderson only sounds like ray anderson and no one else sounds like that and knowing that that knowing that that's the voice that was going to be in this ensemble did you write specifically knowing well this is what ray anderson sounds like and what he you know i think about this stuff a lot it um and I feel like I hear people talk about this a lot, and I know it goes, sort of goes back to Ellington and maybe before, you know, this kind of idea of writing for the personalities in your ensembles. I must say, as I reflect on this stuff more and more, you know, and I've been sketching a bunch of new music actually just the last couple of weeks for future projects, maybe it, it ends up like that. I, I just write. And, like, if, if Ray couldn't have done it, some other great trombonist would. If, God forbid, someone couldn't do something, somebody else would step in. And I feel like people, it's this thing about bring, writing for people, sure, I mean, they're in my mind, but I think, it's, I think their personality comes out when they get the material. You know, I don't write something that only Nate Woolley can play or only Chris Dingman can play. It's what they do with it that makes it their own, you know. So not to, you know, people can 
conceive of things however they want. But I think I feel like for myself, I've sort of been realizing maybe more and more that I'm I write. You know, I sketch at the piano mostly, and I sketch like treble clef lines and bass clef lines, and sometimes it's just two on a grand staff, sometimes as many. And then it, you know, I get dumped into Sibelius and voiced out, whatever. It could be for anybody, and it's what happened. I, I, but except that it's for them because that's who have graciously ex- in, agreed to do the project, you know. So I, I feel like this whole kind of feel like it's a chicken egg thing a little bit with this Ellentonian concept of well, it only could be for Johnny Hodges or Barney Bigard or whatever because it's once it gets into their hands that it's theirs. Hey, Uni, how you doing? So. I don't um, know if that's like verboten to say, but I really no. I, yeah, I, I think it's kind of refreshing actually to hear somebody say that they write and who plays it plays it because yeah. I mean, almost everyone does own. answer yeah. exactly the other way, which is oh yes, I definitely had their sound in mind. But there's only I've always I never push back on that answer, but I, I do sometimes wonder. I mean, there's even having a person's sound in mind, there's still a finite number of pitches that are available sure. and you got to use some of them and so you know that person may play certain things a particular way but you still are going to have the same base material to work with no matter who it is on the other end of that well it's like it's been there's um i've been talking with the string quintet about a a a commission for next year and they're sort of like well is it going to be like a you know jazz thing or is it going to be more like your new music thing from that orchestra piece and i was kind of like well it's going to be like me hopefully and then it's going to be like you you know and that's I don't know. That's as best as I can understand the process. Like, I don't sit there and say, well, Ray couldn't couldn't do that. Like, obviously, he could do anything. But, you know, like a, a certain instrument, instrumentalist wouldn't do that, so I won't write that. Right. Or vice versa. Or, you know, they can do that, therefore I'll write that. It's like you write what you write, and then you give it to someone, and they say, now I'll make it my own. And I would, and frankly, that's maybe it's what makes me f- a jazz composer one way or another, but that's how I would want a new music ensemble to deal with the piece, too. I mean, realistically speaking, they're people who are real strict interpreters are like well what do you want you tell me and it's like okay you deal with it but you know when you're writing for improvisers you write what you write and it's up to each individual voice to to make it their own you know so since you answered that question that way let me ask you the other one that i usually ask kind of in tandem with that which is when you're actually in the performance situation or in the recording studio and you've got your music there on the stand how much are you directing then the participants in the session to deliver your vision it's a good question, and I think it depends on you know uh, how much rehearsal time there is, and how a band grows over time, and how well people know the material. Um, but certainly, and I, I, this um, this has, also has to do with Candidate Three with the third quintet record. Um, you know, because it's one of the uh, song lines. The label that it's on likes to do inter- interviews with the musicians when the records come out, and he asked me something like this. And I, I think it's it's like um, a kind of quick answer, I suppose. Is uh, you I want to have a I think it's helpful for the leader to have a clear vision of what they want and also to be completely open to the music unfolding the way it's supposed to. So I ask people's input, of course. Um, and I also, at the same time, appreciate as a sideman when the leader says clearly, okay, you know what? We tried this, we tried that. Let's do this four times and we'll move on. This is the solo order uh, trombone. You have, you have a slide, so it's easiest for you to cue, you know, stuff like that. Um, not like... I'm not looking for some dictatorial thing, but for that kind of like, let's make the make it go the smoothest it can. So you sort of get people's input because it's people's individual voices, but also it's it's helpful to have someone say, especially if it's someone's band, you know, say, okay, we're doing it like this, and you move on, and and then everyone knows. And the, if the whole point, and so that's why I say it depends on the project. If the whole point is to get rid of hesitation and just be able to play, then depending on how much 
preparation time you have, one rehearsal and a gig or a whole tour or whatever, then you're trying to make it as musical as possible and just it, it helps the process if you just like fix things I feel like in, in these these contexts anyways you know fix things that need fixing and then they then everyone knows they're happening and you can improvise and can make music you know? You suggest this in in the liner notes, but I'm I'm interested in the the balance of on the octet album a, a core group that knew the music well and had played together a gazillion times, and then I think and as I said, you express this in the liner notes, and then three brand new voices who are brand new to the music, and kind of what impact that that yeah. tension or difference had. I think it helped uh, from a realistic process. The quintet had just got off the road, and then uh, the first time we did it, and then we had literally we had like an an hour rehearsal or something like people's schedules or whatever and it was at the Brooklyn Conservatory in a tiny room I had a cajon I didn't have a drum set there was no bass amp you know it was just kind of like a so it helped um, it's kind of a kind of a rush process so it, very, it helped to have five people who had just been playing those tunes even though it wasn't the same arrangement you know they knew it and they could kind of bring the other three along um, and that helped overall even when it came time seven months later to try out these octet arrangements there was pieces that the quintet knew sort of you know so it, it kind of was like a just like expedited the process you know and at the risk of uh apple's uh ninja hit squad coming to find me uh, in windsor terrace can you tell the story of ballad for 10.6.7 oh, yeah 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 it's a sad one um and i still am <laughs> suffering from it so uh 1067 was the new os circa mm, early 2011 and of course stupidly when it came up on my screen would you like to update to the latest version i was like well of course i would <laughs> Uh, right what could possibly at, go yeah, wrong? Yeah, right, right. Literally, the week before, I did it in the end of March, and the parts were due for a sixty-person or fifty-five-person orchestra piece uh, in the second week of April, and what, such that uh, it something happened, and it was a glitch between Sibelius sixth uh, 
and which is newest, music notation yeah, software. Yeah, the music notation software I was using, and, <laughs> and this new Mac OS, so that when I would create PDFs for my Sibelius files, because I had to send the parts off to a copyist to to print them nice and on nine by thirteen paper and all this kind of thing, you know, this thing that the orchestra demanded or whatever. Uh, and it, they, the PDFs opened with no fonts, like the, the font with no dynamic markings. The fonts were all screwed up. And I like went to the Mac store. I went called Sibelius. I looked on chat sites. I did everything. And in that little two week window, nobody could help. It was all a disaster. And then s- somehow, finally, Mark Elias, another one of these composers who had a piece on this American Composer Orchestra concert that I had my orchestra piece on, said, "Why don't you just send the copyist?" your Sibelius file instead of PDFs and I didn't know the copies had never said I could even do that so that was finally thank you Mark finally that was the solution but uh, at that time I was also finishing this other this ballad and I was just like you know what I don't know what else to say this is for you (laughs) thanks a lot you know (laughs) lovely well this show's made on Linux so I'm just saying Let's turn to uh, Canada Day 3 now, and um, can we start just by having you take a little look from the beginning of this band to now and talk about, are you, uh, just talk about the evolution, talk about what you see in terms of the growth of sure. the band. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, I'd love to. All right, so, it, you know, it started in 2007 on Canada Day, this quintet, I've been trying different lineups, basically, and this quintet settled, happened to settle on a gig July 1st, so it got its name. Um, we recorded our first record in 2009, second one in 2010, which came out in 2011, and then this is the third one now, so we recorded it at the end just now of a very uh, great and uh, sort of uh, rigorous travel-wise, but really nice string of gigs um, in um, February, March 2012, and then recorded the record, so it's come out pretty quickly. Um, and it's, you know, in each case, uh, the music's basically been recorded more or less a year after working through the material. So... Um, it's just been it's just been a nice uh, a, 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 I've been very gratified feel very lucky to have had a group of people to kind of go through um, Garth is the second basis Ivan Ospik was the first basis on the first two records we still work together it's great um, he just uh, he's about to have a baby he didn't was not able to do a lot of tours so it's kind of like well you know need to find someone who can but basically to have a working band go through three records now um, 
and to yeah to kind of develop a book then record it and move on it's it's what i basically the reason i moved back to new york is i wanted to have a working band and and five years later it's been it's been what's been happening and we'll, hopefully we'll be in europe in uh february 2013 you know it's kind of like we'll have uh some life and i i <laughs> as sort of crass as it is i can always think of like led zeppelin one two three and four as this kind of like well you know a band makes four records and then they figure it out, you know, and so hopefully we'll make a fourth record next year at some point and then we'll see what happens. Maybe this is a, a dumb or an obvious question, but do you find yourself writing different or more adventurous or more complex things knowing the band as well as you do now and knowing how they operate? I'm not sure if it's simpler or more complex based on the band. It's more kind of the time. Like uh, the second record, was uh, I wrote most of the music for in the summer of 2009, right after our son was born. And I was just, as I think I wrote in the liner notes for the second record, I was just totally you know, exhausted and out of it and whatever, and just wrote these, like, kind of, like, sort of sentimental little themes. Not all, but, you know, there's sort of, like, a sort of a simpler vibe in a way compositionally to what was going on in that second record. And this third one, it's not like it's anything particularly complex, but sort of gotten back to more of these kind of... They're short pieces, but they're kind of, um, I don't know, they're full of some twists and turns and stuff like that, and um, different kind of strategies for uh, uh, finding nice platforms for soloists and also for finding uh, ensemble textures when you know like kind of open improvised moments inside the pieces stuff like that so it's kind of gotten back to i don't know if it's any complex might not be the right word but you know kind of slightly more involved process and then i think that's kind of how i don't know for sure because i haven't done it yet but it's just started sketching stuff for the fourth record and it seems like there'll be these kind of sort of more involved pieces a little bit
what has kept you engaged with Canada Day in this way? It's a good question. Well, again, it's I, I, when I moved to New, back to New York in 2007, 2006, I guess, it was like, let me find a way to have a regular working group. It probably was all those experiences of like working up a project, recording it, and moving on to something else. It was just wanting to try and do the uh, take the other approach, you know? How important is the the interpersonal cohesiveness of a band in your experience to keeping the band together? As in the, the extra musical, you mean? Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, a good, yeah, it's a good question, too. I mean, I think there's any number of different versions of how bands can work. They're like the Rolling Stones thing where, like, they don't talk to each other or see each other and accept that on gig, you know, on stage. You know, or there's, like, the band that's five best friends or whatever, you know. Um, so I, I don't know if it... I think it's, it's obviously very important. I don't think it has to be one way. Um, fortunately, with Canada Day, it's a, just sort of whatever mix of personalities it is, it really works great. We have a good time on the road. You know, I try to make sure that the tours are cool and the everyone gets paid and, you know, the hotels are not, you know, as best you can. So, like, because no matter how nice, how, how well people get along, if you have a crappy situation that can test, you know, right. a band's uh, <laughs> existence and as it should pretty quickly. Right. So, you know, I think it's the band leader's responsibility to try and make it um, in every way you possibly can, hopefully first and foremost musically, but also kind of like in the extra musical ways, an enjoyable experience, a productive experience for people. And if you do that, um, then then the band wants to grow together, you know, and... I think. It, it seems like in the jazz world you have some additional challenges where you know it's not like Mick Jagger is not also out with his other three bands. You know, I, don't know, I that, heard this band on Saturday Night yeah, Live on the weekend and it was true. terrible. That was, that, that was quite a thing. Yeah, maybe that was a bad example. <laughs> but in the case of most rock bands, that's the that's their band. Right. I mean, certainly right. there are people who have several projects, but that's less common than right. it's just here's our band. Right. Whereas. In this case, you kind of get people's attention for these little windows, no matter how much the band works. Jazz groups only work so much. You yeah, know, I mean, there's, there are very few 300 nights a year bands anymore, if there are any. Right. And so it's like you just you get to draw them into your world for a little while, mm. but then they have to go back to their own world or other worlds just so they can live indoors and eat and all that stuff. <laughs> and I just wonder kind of how you navigate that. Like, you're, It seems like there must be some little piece of always having to say, okay, now we're back in this context. Mm. And I, I wonder if that's yeah, yeah. true, if that's your experience. I or? think it is true. And I think people, you know, I, I guess I'll only speak for myself. You know, I feel like, um, uh, you wear several different hats, uh, as, as many or as few as you can sort of manage. And as a leader, as a collaborator, as a sideman, as an, as a parent, as a teacher, you know, whatever else you do in your life. And you try and kind of look ahead and I remember, you know, I feel like, um, I don't know if it was, remember I met, uh, while I was Leo's student at CalArts, I met, um, I was at the, the recording for the first Golden Quartet record at Avatar, which was a wonderful experience, and Malachi Favors and Anthony Davis and Jack DeJunette playing great, you know, the whole thing, and, and I got to hang with them some at the time, this was back in, I guess, 2000. And uh, I remember Jack saying, well, you know, I try and plan my stuff a couple years in advance. I think we were just talking about, like, how do you know what you're going to do next year or whatever. Um, and while I'm not quite you know, into 2014 just yet. I think you sort of think about things in these kind of, and I, I thought about this actually as Canada has been evolving, not quite in geologic, these are probably two grand, you know, amounts of time, but in just longer terms and, um, uh, you know, sort of think about, well, you know, I think we're going to try and do some stuff in Europe in February 2013 and um, may hopefully we'll record at the end of that and maybe the record will come out in September, you know, these kinds of things. And then, and then so then you have your little blocks of time and then someone calls you for some stuff in between it, and you say, okay, well, that, that time's blocked out for that, and I know my teaching semester goes from that there to there, and I know I'm going to hopefully go visit my folks in August for a week, you know. So all the musical and otherwise, all the little things in your life, or my life and in, I think a lot of people's lives, 
end up getting compartmentalized sort of scheduling wise and then you sort of think about them musically like that that's not to say that every group has like a week here and a week there there's all these little one night things that happen in your life sure so but yeah i think it's like kind of like compartments of various sizes well you talk about the tour you went on earlier this year where you went and what it was like yeah that that was canada day quintet kind of the working group uh, and the only really manageable barely manageable amount of you know people you can take out you know three is a lot easier than five and i'm sure solo tours are much easier (laughs) than that but uh yeah we did this strange wonderfully fun but also really strange routing of a tour just based on how the work kind of came together but so our a friend, Andrew Raffodur, a great composer and saxophonist, is a professor at a, uh, the new college at the University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. Strange place, but a good time. Um, and so he had offered me something a long time ago. So it, you know, we said, oh, man, all right, let's put that down. And a year from now, we'll see you in Alabama. And then a gig came up in uh, Orlando, and that made sense because it was sort of close. They're like eight hours away. <laughs> right, it's not close. that close, but no. it seems closer than It was like enough things, that yeah. we could like fly down, fly to the other, and come home, and everyone you know would do cool. And then... Uh, a couple gigs came up in Ottawa and Montreal, and I was like, well, we'll do this weekend, and then we'll do that weekend, and, you know, we'll be in, in New York for a week at home. And then Redwood Jazz Alliance, which is a really lovely gig in Arcata, north, five hours north of San, five hours north of San Francisco, uh, we're like, we have a cancel... Sorry, car alarm. <laughs> um, we're like, we have a cancellation on this one day, the only day that works. Maybe, if not, you can try for fall 2013 or something. Uh, and I was like, well, okay, you know, it's like the, every, the circumstances, it was all well worth doing from that perspective. It was just going to be kind of a burn. So we flew to Florida or to, yeah, flew to Florida, then to Alabama, flew to California, played a little gig in Berkeley, which was really nice. F- drove up to Arcata, drove back, flew out the same day, drove up to Amherst, Massachusetts, played at the university. My friend Jason Robinson teaches there. Drove up to Montreal, played in Montreal the next night, played in Ottawa the next night, drove back and recorded the next day. Oh, my God. It was a lot of miles, a lot of frequent flyer miles, too, and a lot of miles on the car. But, you know, again, it's like since all the gigs were cool, it was pretty much manageable sort of time-wise. And everyone, you know, in the band enjoys hanging out and whatever it is. We we did it. And we we made a record that was we were exhausted, but it was sort of easy to make in a certain way. At least from the perspective of like, let's just go in and play this music like we've been playing it, you know, and we did. So, Is I there wouldn't recommend that routing yeah. ever <laughs> to myself or anybody. I hope that's but, the classic line of the booking agent who doesn't own a map. That yeah, yeah that kind like, of thing. I yeah. have a great idea. Right, <laughs> <Try to> arcade <laughs> tomorrow. So. Is there a part of that that's fun? Yes, <laughs> it's a small part. No, it is. I mean, the part is playing playing music, and, yeah, and 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 having a group of people kind of grow something together, and and having especially you know as I'm sure many people say when you go outside of New York, all of a sudden, of course, it happens in Europe, but even in the rest of the U.S., you know, sort of an event that you're coming to town to varying degrees, and uh, appreciative audiences are a beautiful thing, and expansive audiences are a beautiful thing, and uh, gigs that pay cool are a nice, you know, all these kind yeah. of sort of things where you're like, oh right, I mean, not playing music to make obviously we don't do this to make money obviously but uh if there's a if the promoter has a good guarantee for a gig it means they're invested in making this a good experience for everybody and having a good audience and not losing their shirts and whatever it is and so you know when you go play a concert like that usually it's in europe sometimes in north america uh you know it's nice and and i'm not that old i'm 36 but you know you do a lot of these tours or i did a lot of these tours in my 20s and even up until a couple years ago when it's kind of you know not quite the you know, indie rock DIY tour, but some version of that. And those are okay, but um, anything's okay. What, whatever people want to do is cool. But, you know, it's nice to feel like, you know, each tour gets a little better and despite the routing, you know, that um, 
So yeah, the music is what's fun. That you know, all that flying and stuff and dr and driving and that particular riding was a drag, but we made it work. So can you talk about upcoming chances to see this band? Yeah, both of them actually. So there's I timing wise as it worked out the quintet cd release gig is june 16th at cornelia street cafe in manhattan uh, and the octet has a cd release gig june 17th at the uh, red hook jazz festival so that's um it's an, a great sort of uh, diy afternoon uh, please don't rain kind of a festival in carroll gardens over by red hook um in Brooklyn. So, yeah, June 16th, 17th, each band is doing a little back-to-back -back CD release. And then you're also going out in other contexts, too? Yeah, a group of mine called September Trio. It's a trio with Angie Sanchez and Ellery Escalin is going to Europe for 10 days um, at the end of September. Um, it's kind of the next... Uh, and also, I'm, uh, another before that, I guess, uh, the Vancouver clarinetist Francois Uhl has a new project, also a Songlines record, um, with myself and Mike, Michael Bates, Samuel Blazer, Taylor Hobynum, and Benoit Delbeck, the pianist, um, we're touring the Canadian festivals for a couple of weeks, end of June, first week of June, uh, last week of June, first week of July. Fantastic. Yeah. So if anyone's in Canada, any of those cities, we'll be there. That's great. Uh, my guest is Harris Eisenstadt. There's two new records out, one on 482 Music, which is the Canada Day Octet, and one on Songlines called Canada Day 3. And uh, it's been great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. music from Harris Eisenstadt. He's got two brand new records, the Canada Day Octet album and Canada Day 3, and this weekend he has his CD release parties. Please check the show notes for this episode, number 381 at thejazzsession.com for more information about that. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can sign up for the mailing list at thejazzsession.com and get some email once a week that tells you uh, nowadays where I am in the world and where I'm doing my poetry readings and also tells you uh, about who's on the show that week. You can become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can make a one-time donation to the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. And I'm going to be in a lot of places in the United States. Uh, there are uh, quite a few more stops before New Orleans in uh, Charlottesville, Nashville, Knoxville, Asheville. And if I can find any other Vils, uh, I'll do some of those too. And then I think, like I mentioned, in uh, Auburn, Alabama, I think in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I might try to get over to Florida. I'm going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, sitting in the booth the organ booth at a Braves game, interviewing Matthew Kaminsky, who plays the organ and is also a jazz organist. Uh, all that stuff is coming up. So if I'm coming where you are, please drop me a line because it would be so much fun, as I already have been doing on this tour, to meet more listeners to the show. It would be really, really exciting. Please do come out to the poetry readings because reading to an empty room is weird. And other than that, I encourage you to get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.